So let's turn to scripture now. As I mentioned earlier, we've been on an incredible journey with Jesus in Luke. And we have seen Jesus showing us the heart of God, the heart of the Father, what God is like and what God wants of us. So today we've reached Luke chapter 10. And as Julia said, we're going to read a well-known passage together. If you have a Bible there, please turn to Luke chapter 10, but it will also be on the screen for you. And we're going to read from verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is God's living word, and it is for us today. So, this is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. What can a preacher say on a story that is so well known? But maybe something about this story that is less memorable, certainly for people outside of the church, it can easily slip our attention, is that this is a story within a story. The parable is framed. Jesus is telling this story in response to something. And he follows it up afterwards as well. And that framing, that setting of the story is as important as the story itself. So we begin with a lawyer 
asking Jesus a question. And this was the way that ideas and theories and arguments and beliefs were discussed. The lawyer is using a very commonly used approach to start a discussion, a debate. And he starts by asking a question that he already knows the answer to. And in fact, everyone around listening that day would also know the answer to this question. The first question is just an introductory question to get him to what he wants to get to. So his opening gambit is, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now bear in mind that as Jews, they believed that they were all saved anyway. And it was everyone else who wasn't. But it was possible to live a life that was in keeping with God's laws or a life that wasn't. A life that was pleasing to God or a life that wasn't. And so what seems to be behind this question is what must I do to guarantee that I'll definitely be included in God's blessings in the next life? How can I absolutely nail it down so I have no doubt at all that I've lived a life pleasing to God? What is the way of life that will absolutely, definitely lead me to eternal life? Jesus doesn't give him an answer. Jesus replies by asking a question of his own and he sends him to scripture. Well, what does the Bible say? And the lawyer's got his answer ready. He quotes uh, what has been called the great commandment, which is a combination of two texts from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a correct answer, Jesus tells him. Well done. But it's not the whole answer. Jesus hasn't only asked him what scripture says, he asked a supplementary as well. Not just what does the Bible say, but what is your interpretation of what is written? How do you read it? Because what is written doesn't always give all the details that we need, does it? It needs interpretation. That may be what it says, but we're going to need to talk about it a bit more because we need more clarity, more precision on who we're defining as a neighbor. So Jesus asks him, what's your interpretation of what is written? But the lawyer doesn't attempt his own interpretation. That's not what he's come here for. He wants to know what Jesus' interpretation is. That's what this whole encounter is about. In verse 29 of the passage, it tells us that he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to vindicate himself. To vindicate someone is to show that they are without blame. And so he asks Jesus, who do you say that my neighbor is? What's your interpretation of that? I think this lawyer is wanting to see if Jesus will affirm his belief that he has kept this law really very well. 
he probably felt when he was asking this that he had been taking very good care of his neighbours, as in the nice, good, law-abiding Jewish people who uh, lived in his neighbourhood and who were within the circle of his acquaintance. All the people who were like him and thought like him and were within this blessed covenant people of Israel. That's what the law means, isn't it, Jesus? The word neighbor must mean something. Surely you agree with me, Jesus, on its limits. Really, the question he wants Jesus to reassure him on is where are the limits? Not who is my neighbor, but who is not my neighbor? Drawing nice, clearly, neatly defined lines of where the limits and the boundaries are. And vindicating him from having to be concerned about anyone who is outside of those limits. I know my responsibility to love others as myself, but where are the limits of that? Tell me, Jesus, how I can identify which ones I should be kind to so I don't waste my effort on anyone I don't have to be kind to. He wants to find out the minimum requirement. What's the minimum I can get away with and still satisfy God? But God doesn't work on the basis of minimums, does he? And this, this really is the rub. There is a stinginess here again. And he has not understood the nature of his God. I don't want to waste my generosity on unnecessary people. I don't want to go to the trouble of having to love anyone who turns out not to be my neighbor. And so now we have introduced here the category of non-neighbor. By wanting a neat definition of who my neighbor is, I am therefore seeking to define who my neighbor is not. Who are the non-neighbors and not neighbors that I don't need to concern myself with? Just tell me, Jesus, so I can make sure I get my actions right and please God, but without wasting my resources on people who are not my responsibility. So his questions about identifying his neighbor are really a way of saying that there is such a thing as a non-neighbor. And it's that implication that some people are non-neighbors and not neighbors. That's what Jesus is responding to when he tells this story. So we have a man who's making a journey. It's a fairly ordinary journey, as far as we know, but it's a longer stretch of road, an actual stretch of road, that is notorious for bandits and robbers. We might imagine someone walking alone at night on a city center street that is well known for attacks and muggings. We don't know why he was there or why he was alone, but we can probably assume that he didn't have much choice. He had to make this journey by this route, and he had no one to go with him. And so probably, to no one's surprise, things go wrong. 
and he is set upon and attacked and beaten and robbed and left bleeding and left for dead. The next two people who happen to come by along this same road, those two people represent the religious establishment. They are a priest and a Levite. A Levite was a priest's assistant. Both of them represent full-time religious people, religious professionals. It's not possible that they didn't know what the Old Testament scriptures required them to do in a situation like this. They knew concern for the stranger and the traveler and the alien. It's a repeated theme in the Torah, the Old Testament law. God makes it absolutely clear there to the people of Israel what their responsibility is to care for strangers among them. And God is also clear about why he expects that of them. It's because he is their God, because I am your God. And God created all people. And all people matter to him. The text gives no excuse for what they did. And there is no excuse that would be acceptable. And the people listening to this story would know that. No reason is given for them just walking by on the other side because there is no reason that would be acceptable. And so it, it therefore highlights that whatever their reason was, it wasn't good enough. It was a failure of care. It was a failure to keep God's law and a failure of love for God, which was what their lives were supposed to be all about. Let's start at the more palatable end of the possible reasons. Let's see how these sound. It may have been hurry, being genuinely due to be in another place at an expected time, other genuine responsibilities. It may have been that they felt unable to help, they didn't know what to do, and they didn't have any medical supplies with them. Therefore, maybe it's better to do nothing. I'll leave it for someone else. Someone else can help, not me. It might have been that they didn't want to get involved. It just looked too demanding, and who knows what I might end up having to do. Best to stay well clear. Might have been that they were wearing their very best new robes and didn't want to get them messed up. None of those are adequate excuses for failing to do what God required. And as we move towards the darker end of the scale, it might have been because they didn't think this nameless man was worth their time and effort. Or maybe they thought he must have brought it on himself and, and he deserved what had happened to him as though in some way that let them off from having to help. But our worship of God is hollow if we fail to do 
what God asks us to do. Next in the story comes along a Samaritan. That would have shocked the listeners. A Samaritan being the one who comes to help the injured man would have hugely shocked them because there was this long history of deep and intense loathing for each other between Samaritans and Jews. How could a Samaritan be the one who understood about neighborliness better than we do, better than our religious professionals? Jesus has given no reason in the story as to why the other two didn't stop. But he does tell us why the Samaritan stopped. He was moved with pity. He felt compassion for the broken and battered man. And by giving us that detail, it's logical to think that Jesus' implication is that the other two didn't feel that. The injured man hasn't changed. It is the same injured man and helpless man that the other two saw. But the Samaritan somehow manages to see him differently. The Samaritan knows nothing about this man. He's got no more information than the others had. The difference is in the person doing the seeing. The same broken man is seen with different eyes, which reach a different conclusion about how to respond. The Samaritan alone goes to the wounded man. He goes to him rather than just going around him. What has he seen that the others haven't? He's seen a person who desperately needs help, who desperately needs some compassion, who needs someone who will stop and take notice of him. And he sees that God's heart is that we who are disciples need to respond and not just leave it for someone else to do. The Samaritan alone is able to feel compassion, but he doesn't just feel it. His compassion moves him to do something, and to do something at significant cost to himself. So he tends to the man's wounds. He disinfects them and bandages them. And then he puts him on his own donkey and leads him to safety where he can be cared for and recover. And he pays the cost for him to stay there. All of this for a stranger. No reciprocity here. 
He's paying out money that he has no hope of getting back. He's investing his resources in someone who has no claim on him, who he knows nothing about, and who is one of the enemy. But he doesn't just pay money. Before any money, he tends to the man himself with his own hands. He gets down on the ground where the man is and he does both. He both gets his hands dirty and pays out his money. And we need to be reminded quite often actually that loving people like Jesus does is a dirty business. Giving money to help is important, but it's not really what God requires. He wants us to do it ourselves. After Jesus finishes his story, the end of the story, he asks the lawyer, so which of the three then do you think was a neighbor? So we're back to the framing of the story, the story fits in between these opening and ending bits. And the opening and ending bits are what unlocks this teaching. Jesus asks him, so which was the neighbor? And the lawyer responds, I suppose it was the one who showed mercy. So the lawyer interprets what the Samaritan does He interprets that as a practical demonstration of mercy. The divine quality of mercy. An attribute of God's nature. And what we know about God's mercy is that it is absolutely not about deservingness or worthiness. Walter Brueggemann is one of my favorite theologian heroes and he muses on this passage on the question of eternal life in this passage which is where we started today and he says in this story the question at the beginning is eternal life the answer at the end is mercy the question and the answer do not fit together And he goes on to reflect on how Jesus shifts the focus in this passage. He shifts the focus away from this distant, spiritual, kind of disembodied idea of eternal life that doesn't feel like it's got that much to do with this life at all. And he shifts it to putting the focus firmly onto this life, on this earth, and the reality of life here and now. Jesus changes the question from who should receive my neighborliness, he changes it to who has understood the kind of neighborliness God requires. So the questioning and the examination is now not of the receiver but of the giver. And Brueggemann goes on to say that it is that shift from the intangible, from the what? Things that cannot be touched or grasped 
to the tangible, the real things of this world and this life. That is the essential task of the gospel. They're not unrelated, they're not separate. Our thoughts about eternity and eternal life are not somehow disconnected from the life that we live here and now. The gospel is a bridge that translates what is beyond this realm and brings it into the reality of this realm and grounds it in the stuff of our lives. A story about a mugging on a dingy city street feels a long way from talk of heaven, doesn't it? But this is where salvation is worked out, right within the harshness and the pain and the difficulty of our world and of people's actual lives. Let's just think about what life can be like. Some of us get to stick to the safe, genteel streets, and we can get through life maybe without getting ambushed like this man in this story. And we have someone who is safe and reliable who will go on our journey with us. But there are others who have no choice People find themselves in places in life that they'd rather not be or wouldn't choose to be if they'd been given a choice. Sometimes it might be the choices that we've made that end up leading us to a place we hadn't expected or foreseen. And there are people who didn't have anyone to go with them at their side on a dangerous and difficult journey of life. They've had to do it on their own. Whatever the reason, sometimes we're just ambushed by life. It's maybe not surprising, is it, that people end up so broken. Things happen that we didn't choose that take our feet out from under us and beat us around the head and steal from us what we may have had and leave us broken and bruised and bleeding. It can happen to anyone. We're not told anything about the man in this story. We are given no information about who he is, this man who's attacked, about where he's from or what his situation in life is. We know nothing about his moral character. We know nothing about what he may have done or not done in his life or how he may currently be living. The person who suffers the attack in this story is left completely anonymous. We're given no details at all, and that's deliberate, because this man represents any man. This man represents any person. His age, 
the place where he lives, his financial status, the life he has lived, they are all left completely blank for the deliberate reason that Jesus wants to make it absolutely clear that there are no boundaries or defining factors in this. This man has no identity other than that he's got wounds. A person is suffering and needs help. It doesn't matter who they are. There is no possible detail about them or their life that would be relevant in assessing how we should respond. The way that Jesus deals with this and responds to the lawyer's questions, Jesus is unmistakably redirecting him to where his concerns should lie. You want to ask me about securing eternal life, I'm going to point you to the realities of this life and the saving of lives in this life. The way to please God has to involve personal action and involvement. This eternal life thing, pleasing God, whatever you want to call it, if that's what you're interested in, then where you need to be is on that dingy street, sleeves rolled up, in the dirt and the mess, responding with compassion and support giving practical help, not asking questions about the worthiness of the person who needs the help. Just helping them at your own cost because that's what pleases God. That's what loving God looks like. The lawyer wants to be assured of eternal life, but Jesus' answer is about our life now. Eternal life and this thing about pleasing God is less about deeply holy and spiritual things than it is about showing mercy in the mess and dirt of a broken world. This is a different way of thinking about mercy and what mercy means, isn't it? This caught my attention because we talked about mercy last week in my opening bit with the children. And we, we tend to think of mercy in terms of not using a, a crushing power that we have, not punishing someone, letting them off. But here, mercy seems to mean not ignoring the needs of a broken person that we do not know. Not just walking past and leaving it for someone else to help or thinking that we couldn't possibly help. And I just found this really interesting that mercy is not just to be understood as the withholding of an action. 
It is also to be understood as the proactive taking of action, doing something, of actually responding in person to help a stranger who needs help. What is the way of life that leads to eternal life? It is the way of mercy. It's living a life of mercy. Mercy is the choice that I make that I will use the resources that I have for the benefit of a person who has needs rather than for my own benefit. It's a sacrificial choice. It's a costly choice. But when we choose it, mercy is an act that summons the kingdom. Because when I enact mercy, I am embodying the heart and the character of God. It is when we enact mercy that the kingdom can break through, that hope can break through. And it reshapes us because we haven't put our own benefit first. Mercy is transformational. It may or may not transform the person we've helped. We can't guarantee that it will. But it transforms us when we choose this sacrificial, costly mercy for the sake of helping others with needs. It is transformation for us because it brings us nearer to the heart of God. I believe that God is calling us here to show mercy, to live out mercy here in this place, to use the resources that we have to show lived out mercy to people in our community and beyond who have been beaten up and broken by life, who've had some pretty rotten life chances, who haven't had the opportunity to choose something different for themselves and had no reliable companion to go with them and help them. God is calling us to them. And I believe he's calling us to use our building, our facilities, and the resources that we have in compassion, in mercy. Because that's what loving God looks like. And I believe he's calling us personally. Some doors are starting to open. And there will be opportunities before too long where we will need people who will step up and respond to this call. To be hands on in showing mercy. To give your time and your energy to serving needy ones in our community. I really trust and pray that some of you will hear the call of God in your heart and respond 
when we bring some possibilities to you in the next few weeks. We haven't quite got things sufficiently ready to bring to you, but we're getting close. What does God say to you about mercy? About using your resources, not least the resource that is yourself in person. I can't do this on my own. And I don't want to. I need everyone to play their part. And to be willing to not just sit there and listen to these nice words every Sunday, but let them get inside you and start working in you and changing you. How will you respond? Do we want God to bless our church? Do we want God to bless us and grow us and deepen our walk with him? The way of life that leads to eternal life is the way of mercy in the mess. It is transformational.